0: Uh, At first, I did a a bachelor's degree in psychology, but I was already very much interested in consciousness and the mind-brain relationship. And after my bachelor's degree, it was at the University of Montreal. I did a a doctorate in neuroscience, uh, and uh, also at the University of Montreal. And then after that, uh, I did two uh, postdoctoral fellowships the first one at the University of Texas. And it, it was uh, in brain imaging, functional brain imaging, which was beginning at that time. And after a few years, I came back to Montreal. And I uh, I worked at the Montreal Neurological Institute, famous place uh, for neuroscience in the world. It's affiliated with uh, McGill University. And I was still uh, working on uh, functional brain imaging. So that's my background, but uh, I'm not your uh, usual neuroscientist because uh, I started to have deep spiritual experiences very young, as a young age. So uh, because of these experiences, I knew deep within that uh, the central dogma of neuroscience, the mind is what the brain does, was totally false. I knew that, and as an eight-year-old, I decided that I would become a scientist who would later on uh, contribute to demonstrate that this was not the case at all, that this dogma was uh, false and that uh, conscious mind and consciousness uh, are not produced by the brain. They interact with the brain. And so I did several studies, uh, for instance, on near-death experiences, but also on... uh, Uh, contemplative uh, nuns, uh, monks, near-death experiencers, following a cardiac arrest also. And uh, all these studies, uh, they were functional brain imaging studies. Uh, They were uh, in a certain sense, uh, trying to identify the the neural pathways involved in uh, various spiritual states. But uh, I, I got interested uh, in one special instance of near-death experience. The one, uh, these experiences, when they are induced by uh, cardiac arrest is very interesting to a neuroscientist, to neuroscience, because in these situations, as you know, after 15 to 20 seconds, there's no uh, blood flow to the brain anymore. The, the heart is not beating anymore and th- there's no breathing. And the, uh, the person, is considered to be in a state of clinical death. So according to mainstream neuroscience, there's no consciousness possible, no memory, no perception, and so on and so forth. And yet when you look at all the, uh, all the studies that have been done on uh, near-death experiences following cardiac arrest, you have over 200 cases of people uh, documented that have reported consciousness, perception, memory, and so on and so forth, while they were in a state of clinical death. So this, but there are many other, uh, also empirical lines of evidence supporting this idea that the brain uh, does not produce what we call mind. By mind, I mean uh, the collection of mental faculties like uh, Thinking, reasoning, uh, emotion, uh, memory, and so on and so forth. And consciousness. Consciousness uh, in psychology and neuroscience. Uh, we use this term uh, mostly to refer to the, the capacity to be able to apprehend what's going on internally, mentally. Uh, either with relation to what's happening uh, inside of the body or mentally or What's happening outside of the body in terms of perception? And, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I uh, I've done many studies, but I've also collaborated with other uh, researchers like uh, Sam Parnia for instance, in the UK. he's one of the main uh, researcher in this field, uh, near death studies, and and many others as well, and. Uh, so, and based on that, I have written books. Uh, the, the, the first four um, lay people. Uh, the first one was uh, in 2007, it was called The Spiritual Brain. And five years later, I published another one, which was more controversial, it uh, was called Brain Wars. So it was about the, you know, the, this influence of uh, materialism in uh, neuroscience and science in general. And now I have a new book that will come out. uh, It's published by John Hunt in the UK. Uh, It's on December 1st. It's called Expanding Reality, the Emergence of Post-Materialist Science. Because I've worked a lot on this development of uh, a post-materialist paradigm based on all the uh, various lines of empirical evidence, uh, not only near-death studies, but uh, you you have also uh, have uh, the so-called psi phenomena, like telepathy, uh, for instance, or recognition, uh, mental influence over physical systems or biological systems, uh, and so on and so forth. But there are other lines of uh, evidence also interesting, like uh, the research done. Uh, for instance, at the University of Virginia, by Jim Tucker and his colleagues on reincarnation in children, and uh, these are a few examples of the uh, the evidence that are discussed uh, in my latest my new book, uh, Explaining Reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So. You mentioned that these are empirical evidences to suggest that mind is not what the brain does. Many people would argue that um, because of the nature of a phenomena like near-death experiences and past-life research, at least from those who aren't overly familiar with the research done, would say that this is um, this isn't empirical information. This is anecdotal, kind of hearsay, um, mm. or you know, unvalidated claims. What would you say to to that kind of opinion?
0: yeah but it's still you know there are several types of uh, evidence that we can consider from a scientific perspective uh, you have also uh, well self self-reported evidence and the the we prefer the uh, you know the evidence that we're uh, obtaining in a, a lab setting because it's uh considered to be stronger but if you take the case of near-death experiences you have self reported data from millions of people that have been collected during the last 50 yeah, 50 some years now almost. Uh, so, this is strong in itself as well, you know. It's uh, mm. but there, there have also been uh, you know, uh, studies based on more uh stringent criteria, and uh, it's a collection, but you have to consider the uh. All the evidence uh, in my view, Uh, and uh, you know, self-report data—it's subjective data—but if you have uh, lots of these uh, these type of data uh, together, they they constitute something uh, which is uh, impressive uh, as well, and that we have to take Mm. into account when we try to understand uh, a given phenomenon.
1: Mm. Would you think it's reasonable? for those who would compare that kind of idea that um, since there are so many different accounts of near-death experiences all saying very similar things and therefore uh, kind of amassing a good amount of evidence, would you say that it's reasonable to compare that to something that a lot of um, people who are sceptical to this would compare it to, something like UFO or alien abduction cases or Bigfoot Loch Ness Monster accounts, which are also, it's not certainly not to the scale, but there are multiple accounts of the same kind of thing
0: Oh, well, in that sense, uh, yes, we could. But I think uh, it's definitely stronger uh, with regard to near-death experiences because you have millions of reports. uh,
1: Mm -hmm. So the sheer numbers. Almost,
0: almost. We know that because based on social studies, it's been estimated that uh, perhaps 50 million people have... uh, I've had this kind of experience Mm. since fifty years, sixty years, something like that.
1: Mm. So, and that's certainly a very good sample, and not just that, but we also have the veridical perception aspect of them as well, as you say during cardiac arrest.
0: Yes. So, so for yeah, because uh, again, I've been confronted to that in my own field. Uh, My colleagues were telling me, "Well, yeah, but that's very subjective." But veridical perception is the most objective component of the nrf experience so and then when you present that to the this type of colleagues well they will say it's pure coincidence it's random but uh, it's random but <laughs> you know you have many cases uh, and uh, we f- we find uh, new cases all the time and uh, <clears throat> so now i'm uh, i'm convinced i'm a believer but i'm also Believer, I have to admit, based on I, when I was young, I've been very sick, and I've had myself a near death experience. And when you have these experiences, you know that they are real, as uh, m- m- many experiences will report. Uh, you cannot convince somebody else if the person is skeptical, probably. But but when you you have this experience. Uh, You know, it's nobody will convince you that it was a pure delusion resulting from a dysfunctional brain or Mm. uh, I don't think so.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. And I think as well as, as you say, the the vertical aspect of it, we also have kind of the added, not benefit, but the added aspect that this took place, as you say, during cardiac arrest, especially where we know the brain was not functioning to a reasonable Mm. level at least it was flat on the EEG, but some people will combat that by saying, well, how can we show that these experiences took place while the brain was flatlined? Because most of the time when a cardiac arrest occurs, there's no EEG measurement, there's no metrics taking place. So could it not have been that these experiences and these um, perceptions took place while the brain was still somewhat functioning but beginning to go down or when it was ramping back up after cardiac arrest. Yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's true. It's a it's a good argument. However, in some of these cases, you have time markers. So it's more, more difficult to explain within a, a materialist reductionist framework, if you will, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in such sure. cases.
1: Yeah. And there are... Certainly enough of them. I mean, if you look at the book, The Self Does Not Die, there are plenty of examples in that.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm.
1: Mm. Sure. Uh, You mentioned as well that um, most neuroscientists obviously don't agree with this position. Um, Well, it's it's uh,
0: changing a bit compared to when I started. uh, I started as a a student in neuroscience uh, in the uh, mid-80s. And back then it was you know like i i I said before the the central dogma was that mind and consciousness are simply byproducts of brain activity but uh, you know there was a new evidence coming especially regarding i would say uh, near-death experiences during cardiac arrest and but other lines of evidence as well and there's a i think we are in a period of transition now in neuroscience because more neuroscientists accept uh, now the idea that uh, it's not like our central dogma is not valid anymore. Y- you uh, you find somebody like uh, uh, Christophe Koch, for instance, who was working with uh, Francis Crick. Uh, he was a hard-nosed uh, atheist materialist for uh, most of his career, but a few years ago we switched and he recognized publicly uh, in a few articles and interviews that we cannot, the materialist framework cannot explain what we call consciousness. And now he, he has become a what we call a, a panpsychist. So he sees consciousness at all levels of organization in the universe. And uh, in, the, in this sense, uh, consciousness would be uh, primary in the universe it would be uh, an elemental or primordial principle which means that scientifically you don't have to try to reduce it to something more uh fundamental
1: yes because effectively if you reduce anything you will get back to that primary that's not able to be reduced <laughs> yeah. any further yes exactly yeah. and well, he's
0: not the only yep. one uh more and more people uh neuroscientists are coming out if you will and philosophers of science as well, philosophers of mind, it's the same phenomenon. So now uh, that's why I'm saying that we're, I think we're like in, uh, in the middle of a, trans- a period of transition between two major paradigms, the ancient one, the old one, the, the materialist framework, which has been dominant for since the beginning of modern science for few, three, four centuries. And what I call, but others uh, as well, call the, uh, the post-material or post-materialist or paradigm or perspective. And it all started 100 years ago with quantum physics, quantum mechanics, the, the new uh, physics compared to classical physics. And even, uh, even though classical uh, quantum physics has made uh, amazing discoveries and has totally re- revolutionized physics, and the te- technology, the technological world, scientists in uh, neuroscience and biology or medical researchers didn't uh, recognize that for a long, long time, but now it's become it's uh, starting to change. And um, a few years ago, I published with uh, co- my, some of my colleagues, people like Rupert Sheldrake, uh, Dean Radin, Larry Dussick we published a, docu- a text that was called uh, Manifesto for a Post-Materialist Science. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been translated in several languages. And now the term has uh, started to be used in uh, symposia and so on and so forth in papers. And uh, so I, I, that's why I'm saying that I think we are in uh, in the middle of a transition period between two major paradigms.
1: Mm -hmm. yes and it's important i suppose that that shift does take place in the in the light of of the evidence because the most common argument that i hear generally a lot of times when arguing against this kind of thing is that the um the consensus especially of neuroscientists are strongly in the other direction still in the materialistic kind of idea, and so they they suggest it's reasonable therefore to go with the masses and say that the consensus knows the information better but for me i would say that that I mean, and see if you agree with this, but that the consensus of neuroscientists especially have never been exposed to this data before and have never had the interest to look at this data. So, of course, Mm -hmm. the consensus is against it. But the consensus on those who have researched this particular area of of post-materialistic kind of um, anomalous experience are strongly in favor of a non-material suggestion. That's Does that right. sound reasonable? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And you have even cases of scientists themselves or philosophers who totally change their their uh, view world, either following uh, sub- an experience like uh, Doctor. ibn Alexander, who uh, mm-hmm. was a neurosurgeon working at Harvard University. But you have in, in other cases, it's the uh, the data themselves. The, uh, the huge amount of data that uh, are convincing people to change their perspective. And it's true what you're saying, because we didn't know, uh, we didn't have the, those data uh, 50, 60 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, so that, that can make a big uh, difference. That can conduce eventually to a, a major shift uh, in science.